Well, welcome to another edition of Unplug It as we look back on a narrow defeat to Brisbane. So close, but yet so far. A dominant last quarter. We just couldn't quite run the Lions down. It leaves us eight and five and still with a little bit of work to do just to shore up a, a spot in, I guess, late September, early October, if you will. Uh, if we can just tick a couple more boxes and we might be able to get ourselves there. But it was 6.14.50 Brisbane, St Kilda 7 at 6 at 48. Felt like we had 100 inside 50s in a row in the last six minutes of the game and just couldn't quite land the uh, the punch that we needed. It seemed inevitable that we'd hit the front. And if we hit the front, we'd win. It just didn't quite ha- uh, happen. And we obviously ran out of time uh, in, at, the, uh, at the very end. A couple of t- uh, difficult shots that were missed. A, a running snap from Tim Membry and a, and a scrambled kick from Zach Jones in the dying stages. But in the end... Bit of a mixed bag. We're probably lucky to still be in the game at three-quarter time based on the opportunities missed by our opposition. But in the end, probably unlucky not to win it. We look ahead to Melbourne this week, another really important game in terms of maintaining a base on those sides around us in the lower parts or outside of the eight and a really good chance to consolidate our position. But Nick, as we welcome you, first of all, it was a, a spirited showing, but a hard one to take that loss to Brisbane on Sunday. Yeah, well, it's a strange one because we uh, over the course of the game, we didn't deserve to win. You know, we didn't play well enough for long enough to win the game. But the longer that last quarter went on, the more I thought we should win this and we have to win this. And that was probably the most nervous and most frustrated I've been probably all year and, and probably for a while in those last few minutes. There were a couple of shots that were smothered inside 50 that, that looked like they were going to put us ahead. I think we had two minutes to go. I think there was two smothers within the space of 30 seconds. Um, and, you know, we, we probably should have won the game. But like I said earlier, we, over the course of the game, we didn't deserve to win. But, uh, yeah, it would have, been, would have been one that would have been nice to, to walk away with. I look, H, at the um, – of all of the missed opportunities, the one that probably hasn't been spoken about too much was uh, Seb Ross passed it to Tim Membry, who marked it about a second and a half after the three-quarter time siren, 20 metres out, directly in front. Now, we always say, when people say, oh, you know, we missed this shot in the first quarter. Um, had we kicked that, we might have won. And my brain's always like, well, the game would have been completely different. It would have gone back to the middle. But that's one where you can say that was the final kick of the third quarter. Play would have started again in the last. So if the siren sounds two seconds later, we'd probably win the game. That's pretty much exactly what I've been, I've been saying this week as myself. I've seen so many comments about that oh memory stopped that first goal in the first minute wherever it was and I'm like yeah well that that, that completely changes the game so it, it's not something that if if we change that one situation then the whole thing changes and I mean who knows Brisbane may kick the next six goals straight after that so it's yeah that that three-quarter time one that yeah split second and I'm sure it's also that about apparently a, a time on wasn't stopped properly or something at some point in in that quarter or something i haven't looked back yet but yeah i heard that and i thought oh that'd be right wouldn't it so it's yeah just a just the little frustrating things that that game was there was just so many little things just going just didn't work it just that didn't work and it's just it was just a frustrating afternoon you just think well we knew brisbane are the least accurate side in the league we knew we were the most accurate side they were going to give us the chances. We just, yeah, just didn't take those few that we had to. As as frustrating as it was, there were some there were some things that we can take out of it. There were some really good positives that we can take out of it. Max King showed a bit again, and it's good to see him fly for a, a big grab and, and take it. 
Uh, I think that'll give him a lot of confidence to, to keep throwing himself at the ball at the contest. Um, but the, the one that I, I was really impressed with was Seb Ross's application as, as a tagging midfielder, mm-hmm. as, a, as a run with guy on, on Lockie Neal. I think uh, Jack Steele has kind of implanted himself as the, as the, our number one midfielder, as a, as a ball winning offensive, um, offensive midfielder these days. And, and Seb's had to change his role. And uh, it's been, it's been a question that I've had on him for a while because we know that he's, he's got some issues with his disposal and, and his disposal efficiency. We know he's not the quickest bloke. So to use him as a kind of a ball-winning burst out of the centre clearance uh, clearance machine is, is probably not the optimal way for him to be playing the game. To play him as a wingman or off half-back or off half-forward with his disposal is probably not optimal for him. But he's got the ability, he's got the endurance, the stamina and the strength around the ball to run with most of the big guys in, in the competition. I mean, you probably struggle against guys like a Fife or a Cripps and, and those sort of guys. But guys like Lockie Neal and some of the other ball winners, Tom Mitchells, those sort of guys, I think he's, he's kind of the perfect guy to run with. And, and I was really impressed with his application and his effort in that role. And that was Lockie Neal's worst game for a very, very long time. He had zero clearances, Lockie Neal, first time since 2015 that he hasn't had a clearance in a game. He had 18 possessions. And I remember... In the pregame, because for some reason the, the commentators are still fixated with Jack Steele tagging, even though I looked at this week and think that maybe size-wise he's actually not a bad matchup for Petrarca if you wanted to utilise him in that role. But um, he hasn't tagged really much this year at all, apart from a few little bursting games. And it was Nick Del Sano in the pregame that was like, no, no, I reckon Seb Ross will go to Lockie Neal and he's usually pretty good at that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And obviously he would, uh, they would have crossed over and, and sure enough it, it went that way. So, yeah, it was a, it was a really good role for, for Seb, who was clearly in our best players. I thought one area where we struggled a little bit, where we've been pretty good all year, was we gave up so many marks inside 50 and, and didn't stick tackles inside 50. They kicked two or three goals where they just were able to either step around or break tackles or get easy crumbs. And Hipwood kicked whatever he kicked four behinds or whatever. But he took so many uncontested marks inside 50 and, and Barry and... I think we had thirty-eight. We had thirty-nine inside fifties. They had thirty-eight. We had thirteen shots at goal. They had twenty. So that was probably one area where it was a, a little bit frustrating. They didn't hurt us, but we gave up more shots than uh, than we normally would in those circumstances. Yeah, it just didn't feel as tight in the back line as what it normally did. They, they, as I was saying last week, they're that running side. They're going to just run off on you and you've got to follow. And what, what they do well is they run out, open up the 50 and all of a sudden they're circling. Other players are circling back behind them. And I'm looking around and going, okay, they ran out of the defense with four loose players. And now all of a sudden they've got four loose players in the forward line. How has that happened? So it's, it's just the whole thing of looking, going, not chasing them too hard, letting that next player in the zone sort of pick them up instead of, yeah, opening their forward 50 for them. So it's, yeah, it was a little bit like, where are all these players coming from? Um, that's just, they're just such a quick team. They're hard to match up on. Um, but just, just quickly back onto the Neil thing. Do you think he was even surprised by what that <laughs> Ross going to him? He just sort of, he, he just didn't seem on his game on the weekend. Well, in, in funnily enough, in, in full circle, Lockie Neal ended up on Jack Steele in the second half, tagging Steele. Steele, mm. I think, had had 20 touches or 19 touches at half time. Lockie Neal ended up with 18 for the game or 19 for the game. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one that I think 
something that we could look at and, and learn from is the way that they utilized Eric Hipwood in their forward line and the way that they made space for him. It's something that I think we could, we could do well with guys like Max King um, in terms of making space for him to lead into in, in terms of being able to deliver the ball to him. Cause Hipwood was just unstoppable. We, we seemed like we didn't have a matchup for him, even though we had, you know, Howard and, and Carlisle back there and Carlisle actually had a solid game without being, you know, over the top good. He was pretty solid in terms yeah. of intercept marking and, and getting into the right spot. But somehow, whenever they kicked long, they had they had room for Hipwood to, to run into and, and take a grab. And, I mean, obviously his contested marking was really good too, but, um, you know, there, there might be some things that we can learn from in, in how we utilise some of that space in our forward 50 for guys like like King and Marshall when, when he's he's up there as well. Just if we get if we get King one on one against defenders like the way they got Hipwood one on one, King King's going to win ninety percent of his contests. He'll mark ninety percent, and the other ten percent will probably hit the ground. So yeah, it, it's just as I say, opening it up and giving those players the opportunity to take control of the forward line. So yeah, as you say, there's definitely something to look at and go, hey, let's let's try and do this. And with Max, we're getting a lot of those deep breaths. Well, you've got just moments where you've got to take a little bit of a deep breath. I mean, there was probably just before half time, three times where he got clear of Harris Andrews and got two hands to the ball and spilt it. And your immediate reaction is frustration. You're like, ah, oh, come on. But you know that eventually he's going to take them. That's just strength and uh, time in the game and, and obviously understanding the sort of game. And as much as you might be frustrated in the moment, thinking, oh, come on. Um, you, you're kind of comforted by the fact that you know eventually that's that's fine. That that'll be okay. It's just I mean we saw when he crunked that one under physical pressure in the in the last quarter, uh, what that's going to be. So yeah, it's not necessarily anything to uh, to worry about too much. I did want to give a um a little mention to as much as and, and I think sometimes it could be the boy who cried wolf a little bit. But when Dan Butler. Uh, was knocked over about 45 metres from goal by Lockie Neal after taking the mark. Now, Butler kicked the goal anyway, so it didn't matter. But he probably, he hammed it up a little bit, certainly, and that probably cost him a 50-metre penalty, but it's still a 50-metre penalty. And all the commentators was spent the whole of the first quarter saying, that's ordinary, that's ordinary, you can't do that. I'm like, only one player broke the rules in that exchange, and he wasn't penalised. So I thought that was a little harsh on Dan Butler, because that's a clear case of the 50-metre penalty. You can't make contact with a player after an uncontested mark. No, that's right. I mean, it was it's like, yes, like you said, he, he did ham it up, but there was no reason for Lockie Neal to put hands on him, no. let alone shove him at all. I mean, you you kind of expect in those situations, he might grab a bit of jumper just to hold him up so that he doesn't play on, but you, you certainly don't expect to shove in the chest at, at that point. And for him to, you know, I think it more surprised Butler more than anything. It wasn't a, an overly violent push or anything, but I think it surprised him that it came in that context because there was no reason for it. There, I mean, by AFL rules, that's a 50-meter penalty yeah, every day of the week. Um, but I think some of the, the negative media around staging and diving over the last two or three weeks uh, probably came into, into play at that point. One of the other questionable ones, I think, was um, who... I can't remember who the player getting the free quick was. I think it was Patton. Ball went about 25 meters away from, from him to take the mark and it was kicked back and landed about... 15 metres away from him. Yeah, and... by, by tell. He got a free kick for high mm. contact about 70 metres out with maybe two and a half minutes to go. So a 50 metre penalty would have been very yeah, the ball was, in that situation. The ball was at the 50 metre line and I reckon it missed missed by more than what it was actually from away from him. So Bearing in mind um, that Jay Carlisle had a 50 metre penalty paid against him against yep. Sydney for hitting a player between the eyes with the ball. The, the exact nice. comparison I was just about to make. So, <laughs> yeah, that, you just wonder. every I think every umpire has their interpretation of what is a 50 or isn't a 50. It's, it, it just, 
it's all luck of the draw which ones you get it seems so yeah just the, it's those little things that do frustrate you when a game is so close that you're just thinking come on i think if this had been on saturday good chance we would have got it but there was a bit gun shy after the decent richmond game i think i think so i think so um i guess votes and and better players out of that game i think it's fairly obvious or fairly uh fairly consistent across the board as to, to who the better players were. But, Nick, did you want to start off with your 3-2-1? Yeah, Jack Steele, clear best on ground. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who didn't think that he was best on ground. But uh, 25 touches, 10 tackles and a goal. Uh, just Again, just leads from the front and does it does everything. There's nothing that he cannot do on, on the football field. Um, two votes I gave to Zach Jones. He kept running. Um, 23 touches, 320 metres gained was, was our second highest for the game. He kept pumping it forward, uh, especially in that second half. He kept running. And uh, one, like I said earlier, Seb Ross, I think, was an underrated role. Uh, didn't get a huge amount of the ball, to, like what, what we've been used to over the, the last couple of years out of Seb Ross. But, you know, 15 touches, five clearances and, and completely blanketed Lockie Neal, especially in that first half, uh, to a point where, where Neal was really um, impotent. You know, he had no impact on, on the game at all. But... Uh, yeah, I thought special mentions, Nick Caulfield, Jake Carlisle, Josh Battle, Rowan Marshall, and, and Jack Billings, who was pretty quiet for, for three quarters, but really stood up in that last quarter when, when the heat was on, uh, nearly pulled us over the line on his own back. And he was, he was incredible in that last quarter. And I've got to almost agree with you there. It's um, yeah, obviously steel, easy best on ground. Again, it's just week in, week out, same thing. Don't, no, don't see anything different. That's And that, that's exactly what we want. I'm actually going to lift Seb Ross up to the two. Um, that The job he did was brilliant. Um, if, if he can get the output of their midfielders there like that every week, if he can ha- almost halve what they give their team, because you're thinking, bear in mind that Lockie Neal is about a 30, 32 possession a game player at the moment. To have only the 19 that he had, to have the no no clearances, just just get that body on him and getting me out of the contest, it's huge. And that that is almost what won us the game there. And and the one to Zach Jones, um, as I say, another workman effort, and yeah, just giving us what we want. But yeah, just that oh, that opportunity at the end of the game there. If if he'd snagged that, then I think it would have been the two for him. So yeah. Yeah, I had a similar sort of vote. So the three votes to Jack Steele, clearly. Um, kept us in the game early. Kicked that goal at the end of the third quarter, which kept us in the game as well. And just kept going the whole way through with 10 tackles. He's a, a beast. He really should finish, at the moment, he should finish in the top five or six in the brown. It's just whether they notice him enough. He should get three votes in that game. Um, Lockie Neal will win the Brownlow by a mile this year, I would think. But uh, And then you've got guys like Travis Boak who will get a lot of votes. Petrarca, Dusty will keep getting votes again. Um, but he should certainly be up there. Uh, two votes I gave to Seb Ross for the shutdown role on, on Lockie Neal. And I guess that made it a little bit frustrating that we blanketed Lockie Neal, Dane Zorko and Charlie Cameron. Um, you would think if you did that, you'd probably win. It just didn't quite work out for us. And I was tossing up between Jones and Caulfield. Could have easily given the vote to Jones, but gave it to Nick Caulfield. I just thought without Hunter Clark in there, I thought that was... He, he's sort of getting better every week. Uh, he's sort of composure, even in the last quarter, was really telling. So uh, really liking his development as a player, Nick Caulfield at this stage. So three to Steele, two to Ross and one to Caulfield for me. Our uh, next guest, last week we spoke to a 
uh, marking or intercept marking centre half back slash centre half forward in in Russell Morris. We're going to stick with a similar era and a similar type of player this week with the high flying Saints defender David Grant. Little pass, good to Burke. Well played, Saints set it up. Burke quickly on. Oh, here's an open goal. Surely Grant to kick his second, and the Saints have done that beautifully. That was good footy. Well, we spoke to uh, a player of David's era last week in Russell Morris, who shared the defensive post for a few years in the early 90s uh, with the likes of David and, and Danny Crawley and Tim Peake and, and the like. But uh, we are now going uh, to a player in, in David who spent uh, 11 years at the football club, or 12 years at the football club, in actual fact, runner-up in the best and fairest in 1989, was an All-Australian in, in 1991, represented Tasmania in state of origin, and by that was part of the proud Tasmanian heritage that links back decades for the, uh, the St Kilda Football Club and was a, a very fine player, an undersized defender in a lot of respects, but certainly was able to, to punch above his weight in that regard. David, thank you very much for your time. Now, uh, I guess going back to that early days when you did arrive at the club, so as I understand it, uh, as you arrived, Trevor Barker was either appointed captain or had been captain just for a little while. The club had, had struggled certainly in the early 80s and would do so for the next few years. But can you give an indication as to your, your first impressions of, uh, of the likes of Trevor Barker and, and what perhaps made him define St Kilda when you arrived? Well, as a successful first turned up, um, Barker was one of my, my heroes. Um, um, watch, watching, you know, idolising you know, everyone in the VFL and... Um, uh, getting to know Barks was uh, was a different. It was different to watching him as a kid. Like he was always, to me, renowned for the high marks and um, and getting injured some a fair bit too. But uh, having been watching him playing alongside him, I got to realise that uh, why that guy was regarded as um, the champion that he um, that he was because he was an amazing competitor and uh, everyone who watched him and uh, has heard things about him. Yeah, his tackling was renowned. He was renowned as maybe the best tackler in the league, definitely at St Kilda, and extremely hard to beat. And whilst we were, you know, we were struggling in that era, winning multiple wooden spoons, you know, he was that uh, shining light, I guess, that um, was an inspiration for kids coming through like myself, um, because, you know, there's a lot more to Trevor than maybe um, the, uh, the opposition supporters saw, because... I got a first-hand look at why you know, that guy was regarded as a champion. Along with, at the same time, there was a nucleus of them. There was um, Robert Elkingston, uh, Jeff Cunningham, Greg Burns, and I'm going to miss a few if I, if I keep going. So, you know, they, they did have a nucleus there of, um, of a, a pretty tough, talented lineup, but um, you know, probably missing in a few other areas. So, David, what was it like? Obviously, grew up in Tassie. Uh, move over to Melbourne when you, when you drafted by the Saints. What was it like that first day walking into Moorabbin and, and seeing those guys there? What, how did that, that kind of strike you coming from, from, ta- uh, from Tassie, from Launceston and, uh, and ending up at Moorabbin? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I think back now, I was only 16 and um, that's, it's incredibly young to make that move, to make the move. Um, and I, I boarded for a few years when I moved to Melbourne before moving with most, but... Um, uh, initially, I, I started training with the seniors and the likes of um, Trevor that I spoke about before, but especially uh, Jeff Cunningham. He was um, extremely, extremely good to kids coming through. He took them on board. He, 
you know, if you had to pair up for a handball drill to warm up, he'd grab you so you weren't standing there alone looking around to see if someone would grab you. Um, um, but, you know, as I say, looking back there now, looking back, uh, I'd only been 16. It was um, an incredibly young to start that journey. But um, lucky, we, yeah, we had the under-19 system, which I was always going to be um, uh, a bit of a slow process because I didn't have everything. Like I wasn't blessed with speed and agility. So um, I was able to work my way up. And I guess if I look at the way that I, I was as a kid coming through, if I was thrown to the system now, I don't think I would have made it because um, I, was, I wasn't a ready-made player like a lot of the kids have to be these days. I had that time through the under-9 and reserve system to, um, to work on a few things. It certainly took me till my mid-20s, you know, to feel comfortable on, on an AFL field uh, with, uh, with things that I had to work on. So a few seasons in, you got, I guess it's, it's a little bit of an upgrade for yourself. You kind of stepped aside and handed on a number to a young kid who possibly, who knew how good he was going to be. And did you think that the little kid stepping into your shirt would become one of the best players that the club's ever seen? It, it was evident very early. That step was always there. Like, um, he developed a lot of things on top of that, but I think that that step and power out of the contest, you know, really symbolised what Harv ended up being. And as for me handing the 35, um, it came a bit earlier. Robert Scratch and Eel came from Geelong, who was 35 at Geelong, and he, he wanted 35 at St Kilda. And so I took the opportunity, if there was a lower number, I said, yep, fair enough, and I'll get out of that. And then I went to number six. And, um, and then when Scratcher moved on, Harves took that number. But um, yeah, I played a few seasons in 35. And uh, so I didn't necessarily, I didn't hand it to Harves. It, uh, it went in between first. Um, but yeah, it was an absolute honour to play um, you know, the, the, the later half of my career with Harves. And um, you know, to, this, to this day still, when we catch up, we're still mates. But to, to watch his career evolve from uh, where he came from was um, absolutely magnificent. How difficult was it in those early days? Obviously, you arrived at the club at the, the back end of the Alex Jeselenko coaching era. Tony Jewell gets a, a crack at it, having come across from, from Richmond as a, a premiership coach, Graham Jelly, for a while, and then obviously a club legend and a fellow Tasmanian in, in uh, Daryl Bulldog. So up until, I guess, Doc's era, it was, it was quite unsettled and, and you always had those changing voices and changing messages. Was that challenging, I guess, adjusting to that over the years? I, I, I really if it was and would have been like uh, for a kid coming through having uh, Tony Jewell, Graham Jelly, uh, Daryl Vordock, you know, their perception of you where you can play at chops and changes. Um, so um, it wasn't until Ken Sheldon, I think, took over as coach that we, we had some stability. And um, I think also the maturity of that list that was um, put together in the mid 80s, early mid 80s, sort of came to fruition when um, when Kenny Sheldon was was coaching. Everyone was sort of around that 100, 150 games. Then with um, an influx of some some players from other clubs, um, you know, we, we certainly, in my time, we had, that was our window of opportunity when Kenny Sheldon took over as coach. And I think you know, a lot of it to do was with um, you know, the maturity of those, those uh, players that were recruited in the, in the mid-'80s. 
1989 was, was a pretty good year for you. You finished second in the St Kilda Best and Fairest to, uh, to Nicky Winmar. Now, we, we all love Nicky. Obviously, love watching him. What he, what he could do with the football and, and on the field was, was just magical. What was it like playing with Nicky Winmar? Well, it, you know, it, I, I used to train on Nicky because me being a back flank and him being the half forward, when they do, we do match practice, I'd train on him. And so I got, I got an insight into, into what it was like to play on him. And he was, um, uh, as much as a magical footballer, he was an absolutely gifted athlete. Uh, I don't know if he actually knew that. I think he, looking back, if he wasn't a footballer, he could have been a, a 200 or a 400 metre runner. Um, and... When he accelerated for a ball, it was effortless. Like he'd be trying to keep with him and like with those beautiful, elegant strides that he had, he could just draw away from him. Training on him, you got a good understanding of why he was so good as well as those, um, those magical skills that he had. Um, you know, they, on top of that, you know, all the players have some athletic separation and, and, and Nicky had that pace, but it was, um, you know, it was... Um, it was just subtle, like that the way he took away, the way he took off, it was hard to read because he had this beautiful glide about him. Now, speaking to Nicky, in 1991, you, you, uh, Stuart Lowe and Tony Lockett, all named in the All Australian team. Um, did you have any inkling that you were going to be named in the team, or it just came up as a big surprise, or how how did you find out about it? And was it on the night or did you get called up to say, hey, you've got to get the nod here or what went on? It's funny you bring that up because I wasn't going to go to the night. It was, uh, it was then done on Brownlow night and um, I'd had a little knee off at the end of the year and I, I, I opted out and then I got a phone call from Alan Schwab and, uh, and he let me know that I was in the team and obviously to, to keep it quiet. So then I went along. So it was... Um, so what I... <laughs> I had to pretend that I was surprised. That, that um, 1991 run to the finals, we always look at the elimination final. You had an outstanding year. Uh, yourself and, and Nathan Burke go down injured early in that game. The, the Nathan Burke one is quite famous, obviously, with the, the high hit from Gary Ablett that concussed him and, and took him out of the game. You suffered a, a similar injury, and, and I know... Uh, a lot of people, my, my father included, always talk about the fact that Nathan Burke was probably going to run with, with Gary Hocking and you would have been an option for Billy Brownless and they were the two best players on the ground and we didn't have the, the, the adequate coverage for them. Can you take us through your injury and, and whether you have any recollections of that day as a result and, and I guess your perspective on, on that elimination final? Well, um, yeah, he... Um, Hocking or Gary... Uh, very close to none or one or two possessions till quarter time, and um, and then when he got taken out by 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 Gary um, uh, by Gary Ablett, then Gary Hocking went on to be I think maybe best on ground that day, and with myself um, it was uh, a product of probably the way I play. I just drifted back in front of I think it was um, Billy Brownless and Paul Harding leading out for a contest, and I just got in front of them and got caught up in it. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I was starting to struggle after that. So um, that was the end of me. So mine, some people say, thought that Gary Ablett got me too, but uh, it was of my own doing, unfortunately. Many, many people say that that's possibly one of the, the greatest and killer teams that, that we've ever had, that 91 unit. And you actually spent a fair bit of time at centre-half back as, as 
what would now be considered an, an undersized centre half back. What what was that like, and how did that how did that happen playing against some of the the premier centre half forwards? Well, well, for me, I think I sort of explained that earlier. Um, I wasn't blessed with pace um, or great agility. Um, you know, I was a failed forward, failed midfielder. So I go to the back flank, and then I started um, using an asset that I had as a kid, marking. If I had the opportunity, I would just go for it. So, and um, I had a, I, I was fairly strong for my size, and uh, and had a good leap. So, the right contest, I could compete with the bigger guys. Um, so, I guess that that's how it's come about because of uh, failures in in trying to get me into other areas of the of the ground. Uh, a lot of that probably did come about from probably the changing face of the club whilst you were there. I mean, you had the struggling mid, early mid eighties to the, I guess, as you're saying, almost a Carlton, Carlton scrapyard in the late eighties and to these young stars coming through to Lowe's Lockett's, Burke's Harvey's all that. And it's an early nineties making as a, Nick said, a very, very strong side, but then it, ticked over again. We started losing a few of these players. Um, we're starting a little bit older again. It just started, like, after 92, started dropping back off a little bit. Did, did the change in the team sort of feel like, okay, here we go again, we're just going to start heading back down? Was there any confidence in thinking, okay, no, we can, we can rebuild this side again? Or where, where was it starting to look like? Uh, well, I think um, we, uh, we got so far, 92, we got knocked out by the Bulldogs. We beat Collingwood in elimination and went on and got knocked off by the Bulldogs. And I think, you know, the perception was maybe that's as far as we can go from uh, the coaching staff. And they and they tried to look outside to try and bolster areas that they thought we lacked. And I know, like, after that season, um, they, they targeted Barry Mitchell. And, um, uh, and uh, I think Jason Daniels ended up going to Sydney. And, um, and Barry Mitchell ended up going to Cohen. But I was going to be part of that as well. So... But I ended up staying St Kilda. Um, so I think, um, so maybe there was a little bit of unrest there for a little bit too, because I mean, Jack Daniels was a great clubman. And, um, and I think a very important part of that rise that we were going through as well. And um, like training on someone like Jason Daniels, I had the utmost respect for him. And you, you could understand why he, uh, he kept his spot in the team you know, every week, because he, he had, he'd always get the challenge of, of uh, Stopping one of the opposition's top players, and um, so, uh, and then we had, you know, a year after that, Lockett leaving. So, you know, things were starting to um, starting to fall away, and then Stan obviously um, had that next group of juniors coming through. That when when I was playing those juniors, and then he took that group to where it ended up. You know, they made a grand final in '97, but. I think, uh, you know, Kenny Sheldon probably felt that maybe that group, he'd taken it as far as they could, getting them to, unluckily, you know, in 91, losing to Geelong by seven points, you know, who knows if um, we kept that team on the ground all game and um, we'd knocked off Geelong or the final system was um, like it is now, we could have gone further. So there's a lot of what-ifs, but um, maybe, you know, Kenny was seeing that that list was coming out the back end and he had to rejuvenate it. Yeah, beating Geelong, we would have got a double chance. Would have played Hawthorne in the second semi and had two cracks at a, at a grand final. So that was a, a huge one for us. Uh, spoke a bit about the, the change. We're talking about it with Jason Daniels, where we lost Adrian Fletcher at the end of 92. We had 
uh, a couple of others uh, in Dale Kicker, who obviously was at the club for a year and then left. Dean Rice got injured and then left. Gilbert McAdam went to Brisbane. There were several others as well. You did mention that the Barry Mitchell trade, and I think it was, it was documented at the time that it, it probably created a bit of unrest within Sydney and within St Kilda as well. I guess your reactions to that, Jason Daniels said that he got a phone call uh, on the way home from somewhere at the end of 92 and he didn't know what the phone call was going to be about and, and then he was told that that was the plan. How did it come about for you? And uh, I imagine it wouldn't have been a, a decision or a call that sat particularly well with you? No, no. Well, on the back of me saying that I was uh, at St Kilda since I was 16, it was my home and I I played at uh, St Kilda when it was um, you know far less than professional and towards the end semi-professional and then getting towards, you know, well, the, the back end of my time, I was going to be shipped to Sydney and uh, that, that didn't sit well with me. It was like I had no choice. That's where you're going. And uh, I understood that they were trying to get Barry Mitchell and I knew why they were trying to do it. You know, St Kilda had to give up a few things. I think it was Jack, a draft choice and myself for Barry Mitchell, who was the, uh, the premier rover in the competition at the time. And um, Jack took the money and ran. Um, I didn't want to move out of Melbourne, and I, I don't think I don't think the end Barry Mitchell wanted to come to us as well. So it, it probably wasn't well orchestrated behind the scenes, and um, it's probably the reason why it didn't go through. Because um, I remember at the time you know, having my nose out of joint, telling me that's where I've got to go. When it was, you know, I know it was just starting to become professional. I guess the modern players now would expect that sort of thing to happen, but I think um, at the time that that happened to. To me, it was, uh, it was a real shock to the system. So off the back of you kind of saying no to the club at, at that stage, what was, what was the reaction from the coaching staff, from the administration, from the, the football department to, to you saying no and saying, you know, I'm, I'm staying? Well, I didn't exactly say I'm staying after realising that I was, I was going to be traded. I, um, I put my feelers out and felt, uh, I, um, I spoke to Richmond in that time and... Um, I could have gone to Richmond in 93 if St Kilda had um, done a deal with them. Because um, St Kilda was um, chasing Brett Chalmers, who was a, a centre-half back out of South Australia. And I think they could do the deal through Richmond with a trade and then offload Chalmers to St Kilda. So there was that working behind the scenes as well. But in the end, um, St Kilda said no to that. And um, it was either a go in the, in the March draft at the time or stay at St Kilda. But I, you know, I, I didn't regret staying there, and I don't, I didn't harbour anything against Kenny because um, he's probably number. He's, first up, he was the best coach that I had at St Kilda, and um, and two, I understood what what he was trying to do. Now, eventually, you did end up leaving the club and going to Melbourne for a year, and just yeah, looking looking through your stats and that, you had one win with Melbourne against. Yeah. <laughs> who'd, who'd you line up on that day? Uh, I spent a bit of time on the bench. Um, I can't remember really doing much. It was very much the back end of my time. But what I do remember about, the, about, that, about that game was uh, how they approached Robert Harvey, how opposition started to approach Robert Harvey. Um, where Early in his career, mid-career, he'd run opponents into the ground and by then opposition was starting to figure out they, they couldn't run with him all day. So... Melbourne would uh, have someone running out of the, um, you know, uh, from the back line to half back and then someone following through the middle and then forward that way as well. Because 
they found that it's most damaging through the middle. If he got the ball and he could step and deliver inside and they sort of let him get possession in the back line. And then, but once he started coming through half back, you make him accountable. So it was, it was interesting that I did, I did watch football, you know, after I finished and noticed that the opposition were doing a similar thing. In regards to the, the defensive unit that obviously you put together in, in your time at St Kilda, which served us so well in the early 90s, we spoke about how Russell Morris was a part of that. But just after you arrived at the club, Danny Frawley would obviously arrive at the club or around about a similar time. At the other end, you would have had Tony Lockett. And I imagine at, at training, that would have made you guys better players as well. Obviously, having to go through Matt Sims with someone like him to contend with. But uh, working with Spud basically all through that 80s, I mean, you, your first captain was a courageous defender in Trevor Barker and your next captain was a, a courageous defender in, in Danny Frawley. What, what was that like, obviously, building that partnership uh, alongside Spud? Uh, yeah. Lifetime memories. And, um, you know, just on that early period too, like I, when I knew I was doing this, uh, like I, you know, you'd ask me about the start, there was, um, you know, the recruiting that era was a guy, a guy called Rod Owen, another guy called John Peter Budge, who were phenomenal talents. And um, you know, we took that we took that um, that squad so far in the into the early nineties. And um, you know, with someone like Rod Owen, if he'd have been able to play two hundred games and John Peter Budge two hundred games, I think um, we would have been a lot harder team to be able to contain with those two guys that had incredible talent. You know, someone like Rod Owen could play anywhere on the ground. And uh, I think he would stack up against, had he been given, uh, sorry, you know, he, was, he was injured, he had really bad injuries, but if he'd been able to play 200 games, I think we'd be comparing with comparing him with a lot of the greats of the game. Um, and then so on to, on to Danny, um, you know, he was a, a fierce competitor on the field and um, an amazing guy off the field with uh, Anita and him being the um, you know the 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 crux of the that uh, family unit that we had, they'd often get us up into up to Ballarat on on um, weekends off, summertime, things like that. They um, they were the real heart and soul of um, of that of that group going through the the late 80s and the early 90s. So um, you know we all um, yeah, had stories here a few months ago on, on you know when Spud passed away. It was um, yeah, it was a sad time, but um, we remember a lot of great times that um, we had due to him and Anita and family. So it was a tough time for everyone to go through, but um, you know, he's left us with some amazing memories and he's probably shaped a lot of us as well. Like his, his humour was amazing. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, when uh, all of us get together and some things come out, you know, they're, our humour's based on a little bit the way he, he was too. He, you know, we, we saw that in his show on the, on the bounce that he was on every week. Yeah, I think, you know, for our generation, Spud was one of those guys that kind of shaped our love and our passion for, for the club. So he's obviously a, a really important saint and, and person for, for the history of our club. But uh, speaking about, about great saints, who was, who, who was the best player that you played with? And secondly, who was the best player you played on? Um, you know, it's very hard to split... For out, outright talent, you know, uh, Lockett, Harvey and Winmar, um, very hard, but um, I'd probably go, if I had to say one, Harvey, and then played against. Um, I uh, 
kind of the unenviable task of uh, of uh, manning up on Burton for a, a couple of quarters, and it was a day that um, they had an altercation with Danny Frawl at the MCGs, and and we had no idea what happened behind play. Spud was off; I just thought he was injured, and uh, and Burton was running around like a um, like an animal that day, and uh, and I, I was the backman manning up on him, and uh, and he he just kept attacking me, and um, so on on uh, on top of that aggression that he had. His, his, his talent and uh, his, his um, will on the game, I, I just found him, um, you know, I, can't, I sort of struggled to look past him because he played him five flags, at centre-half forward, undersized, he was a battering ram, he dished it out and he copped it. Um, and I always look at someone like him and also had the chance to play on Terry Danaher, who was a little bit like that as well, but um, um, I, I rate Dermot as um, probably the best player that I've, I've had to play on. And then I'll name another one, Michael Pickering, for a different reason, played at Richmond, number 35. Uh, he was an aerobic beast. He was, he'd line up on the half-forward flank, lead the kickouts, and if you didn't watch him, he'd try and mark in the goal square at the other end. So two players, very difficult to play on, you know, for different reasons. Uh, just want to finish off. Um, have you made any more calendars in the re- most recent years at all, or...? <laughs> How hard was that to talk you into it, or did you just jump straight in? Uh, well, I, I actually saw something um, on TV. Um, a mate texted me to say something's coming on, so I turned it over and watched it. I heard Mill and Hannah say, yeah, they asked him how he got the players on. He goes, well, they're all vain and they all like the money. Now, I'm not set for life out of the money I got from it, so it's probably a lot to do with vanity, I guess. <laughs> And um, as a final one, what are you up to these days? What's post-footy been like? 198-game career. Uh, where did you uh, where did you settle after that and since? Uh, I played Sandringham for three years and was um, extremely lucky to play in a premiership there in 1997. And um, then played two more years. We made finals both years. But during that time, I transitioned back into, into work because the last couple of years, I wasn't doing much work as it became... Uh, professional, and uh, but I'm back in the building game. I, was, I did a carpentry apprenticeship when I was a kid, and um, in d- domestic carpentry for a couple of years, and I've been in the commercial game um, doing windows and cladding for the last 18 years. So that's where life is at the moment. Um, and I have a son who's 18 now, so um, life was pretty busy there for a few years, but now. He's well and truly up and running, so so things have slowed down a bit as far as that, that goes. Well, you're an immensely popular player back in the uh, the 80s through the early 90s when we asked the question as to former Saints that uh, they wanted to hear from as uh, supporters. Your name was often at the uh, at the very top of those lists. Uh, a terrific servant of the club and should be very proud of your, your contribution. Thanks for, for joining us on the program this week. Well, thanks, guys. Today, well, we took on a top four team and um, we knew it was a, a big challenge, but we thought we were up to it and we were pretty close. Um, there's patches through the game where they dominated and maybe they could have been a bit further in front with the inaccuracy of the uh, the scoring from them, but 
um, the pleasing aspect was our, our grit and determination and not saying we're not disappointed in losing but I was pretty proud of the fight and the spirit and by the end of it it looked like we were running over the top of them and, and gave ourselves a chance. You know, I think it's given us a shot of belief, you know, we're up here and, and we're trying to do our best to win these games and, and try and get an opportunity to maybe get into finals and, um, you know, we're trying to take it week at a time which is an old cliche. But today, um, as the coach, um, I was pretty proud of the boys in their efforts. Now, let's bounce back against Melbourne. But, um, yep, sometimes you, you try hard and you, you come up a little bit short. Today was one of those. So That was David Grant, firstly, and also the voice of Brett Ratton speaking after the narrow loss to Brisbane. We look ahead to Melbourne, uh, who had strung together a good run of form until last week, crashing back a bit with a fairly heavy defeat to the Western Bulldogs. They will welcome back Max Gorn, which is timely for them. Uh, Ryder and, and Marshall with a, obviously a big challenge for them. That they came up against Grundy earlier on in the year. They've got Nat Nui in a couple of weeks as well. So that's the, the challenge that, that sits in front of, of those two players. We spoke about Petrarca and, and the need for attention there. Severos has been doing the shutdown roles rather than Jack Steele. But Jack Steele, obviously more of that body size, but you don't want to rob us of his offensive capabilities. Uh, Hunter Clark will come back in. Probably hard to see too many other changes. It's just who he comes in for, whether they rest by tell or whether they uh, you know, shuffle things up based on height, depending on how Melbourne go in the forward line. But Hunter Clark, the obvious in. Um, I can't see, H, any necessary other changes that come out of that contest. Um, the only, I guess the only sort of players I'd probably look at moving out this week would maybe be the likes of... Um, like, unfortunately, like Sinclair, um, he, he had didn't have as much possession as what I feel like like he should be getting. He's, people are saying, oh, he's a weapon with the ball, but I'm, I'm sort of feeling like he doesn't get enough of the ball to make it make himself that Spot dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's I mean there was there was quite a few times during the game where it was sort of a bit like he was sitting back and watching a bit too much. I, I it's I. The, the position he was in, in a couple of years ago, it just doesn't feel like it's there anymore because of the likes of Hill and Billings is sort of playing a bit of a wider role and it, it it's kind of pushed him out and he's a bit of a, I guess, a, a, a filler in spots when the players are off the field and that sort of thing. But yeah, it just, it just didn't convince me that he, his spot's there at the moment. So I think he's probably the, the one that moves aside for Clark. Um, but otherwise, yeah, there's, there's not not too much I'd be looking at really moving on. We got out out with no injuries again. It's it, it's something that we've been really lucky with this year. There's hasn't been much hurting us, so hopefully that keeps continuing. And yeah, we'll just I don't know whether the Queensland weather's good for it or what. Or but yeah, it's it's been quite good. Touch wood that it stays that way. It looks like, Nick, the September 1 flight, which is the last flight for any AFL player to join the hub, we're going to have uh, Hanabry and Gresham on that. I think I think Dunstan is still up there. I'm pretty sure he hasn't actually left. So he'll stay there and, and Jimmy Webb's still likewise. So that's obviously encouraging. Yeah, you'd think... I mean, Dunstan seems like he's been doing a bit of an assistant coach's role at the mm. moment kind of helping with clearance work and, and that sort of stuff, just from some of the short vision we see at training and, and on, on game day on TV. But yeah, the, the Hunter Clark one's an interesting one because clearly he comes back in. I mean, he's in our best team. 
no doubt, whether he's playing off halfback or in the middle. Um, he, he's in our best 22, and you play him if he's fit. Uh, and the only reason he didn't play last week was to, to give him a bit of a spell after footy frenzy. It's who he, who he comes in for is, is the big question, whether it's a Bytel or someone like Kent um, or a Nick Hind. I mean, the reason that those guys are in the team is for the, the X factor. Kent and, and Hind bring something that, that we don't have elsewhere, especially with, with guys like Gresham uh, out of the team at the moment. So it's hard to drop either of those guys. Uh, Sinclair, like you said, H, I'm really loath to drop, to drop Jack Sinclair because I feel like he also, on one wing with, with Hill on the other wing, gives us some, some class through the middle of the ground and, and some delivery into the forward 50 that, that we don't have elsewhere. But, you know, you could potentially play Clark on, on a wing as well and push him further forward than, than just off halfback as well. So it's, it is an interesting one. For me, I, I'd love to see Bytel in the team and I want to see him get minutes and play as much as possible. But I think this week it makes the most sense to bring Clark in for Bytel just by the nature of the Melbourne midfield. Um, for us to have as many classy ball winners and ball users in the middle is probably more important um, than Bytel's ball winning ability uh, because we've got, got guys like Steele and, and Ross and, and those guys who can do that role uh, as required and, and Melbourne potentially don't have as many gun ball winners. Uh, and for us, I think the ability to, to, to use some elite ball users on the outside uh, is, is beneficial. So for me, the, the one change would be Bytel out and Clark in, unfortunately for Jack Bytel, because I've, I've been really impressed with him so far. I think whether you say that in the way that you think we need to match up with their ball users, do we keep Bytel in to win that first ball? That That's the other thing. The, if we're able to get to it first, then Melbourne aren't using it. Um, oh, and I, I, I think we have. I think we, we beat them in both regards. I think we beat them in ball winners and ball users through the middle of the ground. Um, but for, for us, I, I think even taking Bytel out, I still think our midfield is, is better than theirs. Um, they've probably got the, the number one guy in terms of impact in, in a Petrarca, but the, I think the sum of our parts are greater than, than their one guy in the middle. And, and um, yeah, I, I'd be backing our guys in with or without Bytel to win the clearances, to win the hardball, and then feed it out to some of those classy, classy guys on the outside that Melbourne potentially have a lack of, because we have more of them. Yeah. I was going to say Steel Billings. Um, so Steel Billings, Ross, Sinclair, Hill, uh, Bytel potentially, Clark, those sorts of players against the likes of Petrarca, Oliver, Brayshaw, Viney, uh, their main sort of, Quartet, I guess, in the middle of the ground with a couple of others that sort of run through there. And then obviously Gorn versus uh, Ryder and Marshall. And uh, having Marshall potentially being able to go forward or Ryder and be that extra option for us could be could be useful. Uh, Melbourne, uh, Wiedemann, whether they play McDonald or not, uh, as their marking targets forward, um, one, one assumes they probably drop Braden Bruce. Uh, their other young Ruckman, Jackson, is injured. So... Um, yeah, whether Gorn goes one out or they, or they even play McDonald as a second ruckman will be interesting to see. But I imagine our, our defensive structure will stay relatively normal um, and then try to stretch them at the other end. But, yeah, they're, they're a handy side. Obviously, they blew Collingwood off the park a, a couple of weeks ago and then struggled a bit against the Bulldogs yeah. after half time. So um, probably just our side of 50-50, you would think. Um, but hopefully we can we can tick that box and go one step closer to securing that spot uh, that we need, obviously with Hawthorne, West Coast and the Giants to come after that. 
Yeah, um, I was going to say with Gorn coming back as well, I was hearing something about the opposition taking the ball away from a winning hit out from Gorn is apparently is meant to be the best um, for the opposition in the league at the moment. So the, the opposition's winning more off his tap outs than what the actual off their own Ruckman. So it, it was a bit of a strange one thinking, okay, so the, the, I don't know whether they're not talking well between one another or that, or the opposition teams knowing, okay, Gorn's going to win more hit outs. So we've got to shark his hit outs. And so hit outs disadvantage. Basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's that whole, okay. Gorn's coming back. Um, Bruce is probably pretty unlucky. He's, he's been playing some pretty yes. good football to be yeah. honest. So um, if, if he does get dropped, you sort of go, okay, well that's, there's possibly a little bit of an advantage to us there. Um, and yeah, Ever who goes with him, at if we are rotating the two between them around the ground, they're both going to be able to run with him. So, yes, we, I think we've got him pretty well looking at that way as well. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Proust stays in, just mm. for the fact that we've got the two the two big guys in the middle. But also, um, you know, with the way our forward line sets up, they might be thinking of, of playing McDonald back again. Uh, and they could then rest. They could play Bruce as, as a stay-at-home forward in the goal square. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting. You, you never really know how Melbourne are going to line up. It's they're they're a really dysfunctional unit, and it makes it hard to plan for it at times. Um, but I, yeah, I, just, I just don't think they're very good. I'd, I'd be shattered if we lost to them again. I just like they've got talent, but they just don't seem to be able to put it all together consistently enough to be a, a consistently dangerous team. Um, but one thing that I think we learned from, from the weekend is that we've got to take our chances. I mean, we had, what, seven, eight less scoring shots um, and probably 10 or 12 less shots on goal, you know, off, off a boot total, but, um, and only lost by, by two points. So we really have to take our chances when, when we've got the opportunities like we have all year. That, that, you know, it could come down to that. Could certainly come down to that. And I guess as the nature of where we're at, every game is huge at, at this point in the season, but that comes with being in the territory that we find ourselves in. But another big contest, and hopefully we can get ourselves to nine and five ahead of, uh, ahead of Hawthorne next week. It's actually funny. I think we have a bye between this game and Hawthorne, yet it's only an eight-day break. So make sense of that. Yeah. We play on a Saturday, we've got a bye, and then we play the following Sunday. So Yeah, I think yeah. we've got the bye on probably the best, best day possible, the uh, part of the round to be honest it's it's a nice little break there and i think we come back on the thursday the following week yeah so, so hopefully i mean it's a four-day break into west coast but they also have a four-day break and we mm. struggled on our last four-day break but that was on the back of something like five five four mm. hopefully now if we go by eight day break then go into a four-day break against a team that's also had one it won't hurt us quite as much as it did the uh the, the first time around but Got a couple of boxes to tick before we get to that point. But uh, go Saints and hopefully the right result in Alice Springs on Saturday night.